In a recent book called Stoic Wisdom, Ancient Lessons for Modern Resilience, Georgetown University professor Nancy Sherman argues that stoicism provides us with valuable tools for improving our resilience, coping with adversity, and managing our emotions. But she also argues that stoicism needs important changes if it's to be sufficiently fit for modern living. So what does stoicism offer us? Does it need to be updated in certain kinds of ways? And what do we think of Nancy Sherman's uh, take on a modern updated stoicism? So welcome to New Ideal Live, podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today we'll discuss stoicism and in particular Sherman's book. Uh, I'm Aaron Smith, I'm a fellow and uh, instructor at ARI. And with me today are visiting fellow Dan Schwartz and junior fellow Tristan Deliege. So welcome to you both. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, so first of all, why are we talking about this book? Um, well, I think Stoicism has become uh, a popular philosophy once again. So it was popular in the ancient world and it's gaining a lot of traction today, I think, uh, in many circles. There are Facebook uh, groups dedicated to uh, Stoic philosophy, Stoic practice. There's an annual conference, Stoicon, like we have our Ocon Objectivist Conference every summer. They have like an annual conference and stuff. So it's really kind of gaining adherence. And I think that's an interesting phenomenon to consider uh, both what it is that is attracting people to Stoicism, uh, why people are turning to ancient philosophy for some kind of life guidance and perspective and so on. I find all that, that whole phenomenon interesting. And Sherman's, both, uh, Sherman's book elaborates on both of these issues. What, what are some of the things that people are finding value or she finds valuable in Stoicism? And what some of the attraction is. Um, now, I, I'm, I'm guessing that most of the audience has not yet read the book. It's, it came out last year, uh, though some of you may have. So our plan today isn't to do any kind of full book review or to discuss every element of the book. Uh, we don't have time for that, of course. Um, but we do want to discuss some of the features of Stoic philosophy that Sherman is highlighting and what we think of them. Um, so don't expect a formal book review, but we will cover some of the major issues uh, uh, that are in the book and I think worth talking about. Um, with that said, though, let me just give a very brief bit of background for anyone who's not familiar with Stoicism as a philosophy. So this will be a, uh, a quick one, but I think it'll be useful. So uh, Stoicism is a philosophy that originated in Athens uh, in the third century BC. Um, so this is about 20 years after Aristotle's death. And it flourished until the third century AD. So this is a period of roughly 600 years. And it was really popular in ancient Rome. I think it was the dominant uh, philosophy at the time. Um, and today it's really the Roman Stoics uh, of the first and second century AD that are best known today. So these are people like Seneca, uh, who was a tutor and advisor to Emperor Nero, among other things. I mean, he was a philosopher, he's a playwright. Uh, and Epictetus, who was a freed slave who founded his own school of philosophy in northwestern Greece. Um, he's a lively writer, <laughs> always, always fun and interesting to read. Uh, and of course, there's the uh, emperor, Marcus Aurelius, uh, who he's strictly speaking not a philosopher, but he's philosophical. I think by nature, and he uses stoicism to kind of help him manage his uh, his life and his emotions and the conflicts and so on. So he has a um, a private journal uh, that's known to us today as the Meditations, and it offers us uh, kind of a window in on what stoic reflection looks like and what it means to bring 
a stoic perspective to one's life and troubles and so on. Um, so if you've never read anything by any of the Stoics, uh, what I would do is I would suggest reading Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. It's just a series of journal entries uh, in the end which he wrote to himself uh, while on military campaign. Uh, it's easy to read, it's engaging, uh, and it'll bring you sort of into the world of Stoic philosophy and what, Stoic, what, what it looks like to bring a Stoic perspective to your life. Um, uh, so, but I do want to say one thing, I'm not going to summarize Stoicism as a philosophy uh, at the outset, but I do want to say one thing about Stoicism and its perspective, because this is going to keep coming up <laughs> in the context of the issues that we are going to be discussing. Um, and that's their view that um, the only genuine good in life, the only thing truly and genuinely good is virtue. And the only truly genuine bad is vice. Everything else, so it's health, wealth, beauty, physical safety, a house, a job, uh, whether you're uh, enslaved or free, um, all of those kinds of things they classify as indifferent. And by that, they mean that these kinds of, these things like health, wealth, beauty, and so on, they make no difference to our happiness and they make no difference to our moral character. So by indifferent, they technically don't mean that you are indifferent toward them, um, though there's more to say on that. But indifferent really means they make no difference to our happiness or moral character. Um, so moral virtue on the Stoic view uh, is necessary and sufficient for happiness. So once you have moral virtue, once you have a virtuous character, you have everything that you could need for happiness. So if you don't have health or wealth or beauty or physical safety, or you've been made a slave or something, you can still be happy, uh, completely happy on the Stoic view, because as long as you have your moral character in order, as long as you have moral virtue, you have everything that really, you have everything that's truly good. And that's a radical perspective on the nature of the good, uh, but it's one that really infuses Stoicism as a philosophy, and it's one that uh, is worth looking into and we will talk about that more today but this, this perspective is going to sort of infuse all the issues that we discussed today so just want to get that out on the table um but i want to start our discussion of stoic themes with uh some of the things that many people are finding uh enlightening and helpful about stoicism and so to kick that off i want to let what we should start talking about their view of emotions because i think there's something actually good and true about their perspective on emotions, though, I mean, we're speaking largely uh, from the perspective of objectivism here, um, but I think from objectivism's perspective, there's something good and right about their view of emotions, and yet there are important differences as well. Um, so Dan, did you wanna kick yeah, us off? Yeah, so I think Sherman and objectivism are in agreement on this point that the Stoics believe we can manage our emotions, uh, because they are the product of um, judgments that we make, cognitive judgments that we make. Um, and this is valuable uh, in Sherman's view and view of this a lot of other people because emotions are an important part of life. We have fears, we have anxieties. Uh, Sherman points to the examples of people's fears and anxieties during the recent pandemic and those impact our life and we want to be able to manage those and if those fears are not helpful to us to figure out why are we feeling this way and what can we do about it 
And so Sherman crafts what I think is an appealing ideal, uh, the stoic ideal, where we can have a harmony between reason and emotion because the emotions are the product of judgments we make. We can re-examine those judgments, try to correct the ones that are false, and, and make sure that our emotions are kind of responding properly to the world. Um, so this is in contrast, I think, to what a lot of people, you know, if, if they're not, if they haven't read the Stoics, but they have an idea of what Stoicism would be, maybe they think of someone like Mr. Spock. I think actually Mr. Spock was created by Gene Roddenberry to be a sort of Stoic. Um, and if you're not familiar with Star Trek, this is someone who is purely logical, um, just, you know, it's um, kind of unemotional, dispassionate. And that is, I, I think Sherman is right, that's not exactly what the Stoics are saying. We, there is a role for emotions, but what they want to do is bring your emotions in line with your judgments, in line with true judgments about the world. Um, and now they have interesting views about what the world is actually like, uh, but kind of set those aside for the moment. Um, now let's uh, say a bit more about how emotions are based on judgments that you're making with your mind um, and, and how you manage your emotions by reflecting and examining on those judgments. Um, there's a good passage here. Uh, we don't have to put it up, I don't think, but uh, Sherman explains the connection between cognitive judgments and emotions using the example of anger. Uh, and Sherman says, anger does not happen to us, we choose it. The complex process mixes distress and desire, pain at being wronged, desire for retribution. Neither distress nor desire is a blind impulse. Both are implicitly chosen motives consisting of two evaluations of being unfairly wronged. So again, so first you think I have been unfairly wronged the damage ought not to have been done. Uh, and of what would count as an apt reaction, the punishment ought to be inflicted. An emotion is thus a two-tiered evaluative judgment that a bad has taken place and that, a, 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 uh, and that it requires an appropriate or fit behavior. So if um, you know, the anger may be a, for the Stoics, the anger is typically something you should not feel. Why? Because uh, when you're looking at other people's actions, those actions should just be accepted. Uh, those are part of the natural course of things. Um, and so that's kind of the rough sketch of how you would kind of re-examine the judgments that lead to the emotion of anger or the passion of anger. Um, okay, anyone want to jump in there? Is, yeah, uh, let me just jump in quick because I, I know that this, you'll get this a lot in this is one of the things I think Marcus Aurelius is wrong about, but there's something refreshing about his perspective. This is all throughout the meditations if you read this. He's constantly telling you things like, um, why are you getting upset about this guy's immorality? His immor I mean, remember what the, the only true good is, is your own moral character. If, if this guy over here is uh, being immoral, it doesn't affect my moral character. And that's the only way I can be hurt. I mean, he might punch me in the mouth, you know, but that's an effect that, that affects my body, not my moral character. And so several things, I mean, he would say is one is, uh, 
I can't truly be harmed. A good man can't be harmed because no one else can affect my moral character. They might chain me up. They might put me in jail. They might punch me. Uh, they might take away my home or exile me. But that's not the real me. The real me is my inner moral character. And that's the thing that is in the inner citadel protect, protected from all harm. So, and similarly, he takes the view from Socrates, and we won't really get into this, but just to mention it, is he takes the view from Socrates that no one does wrong willingly. And so when somebody else is vicious as a person, immoral, uh, uh, it's because they don't understand the true nature of the good and the true nature of the evil. Uh, and so we should more feel pity, if anything else, uh, for them. So there's a way in which uh, anger needs to be sort of excised um, from our emotional life. And I'll have more to say about that, but that's, I mean, they have a perspective on what they call passions in general. Um, but I don't know, did you just, you want to say something before I, because I have something to say about what they think about passions. Sure, yeah. Um, I think in when we think about what's going on with the stoic view of emotions as cognitive, I, so I, I agree with, I think Dan is right to point out um, that part of what uh, people respond to that's valuable and that uh, is brought out by things like cognitive behavioral therapy, and maybe we'll talk more about that um, later, but um, with CBT and the um, evidence that backs it uh, and the experiential benefit that you have of realizing that your emotions are cognitive um, is something that I think the Stoics are are really right about and that people respond to. Uh, and part of what's going on with it as something that people are responding to, I think, is that it's very empowering. Uh, because if you realize that your emotions are based on judgments that you've made, well, those judgments can be right or wrong. And if you can correct those judgments, um, then you can at least be free from emotions that are based on incorrect judgments. Um, and there's, there's something empowering about that because it means that that means that if you continually engage in that process, the emotions that you feel are in, you know, in harmony with what you actually believe or what you actually know. Yeah, um, I think that's but, the... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. So that's, yeah, there's a little bit of a lag here. But um, yeah, that's the thing that I think is true and good and empowering and uh, the that's a perspective that um, the Stoics hold that I think that objectivism agrees with. And so this is something, so when people uh, study Ayn Rand and they, uh, I think this is one of the things that they take from objectivism that they think, wow, this is really helpful. This is really empowering. So I didn't learn this perspective from the Stoics. I learned it first from Ayn Rand, but that's just happenstance. I happened to read Ayn Rand before I ever read the Stoics. But I think if I would have a similar view if I had read the Stoics first on this point, and they told me, you know, that your emotional life can be both understood and brought into a more rational, um, brought into a harmony with your best thinking, uh, with your judgments that you actually think are true. That if you, so you can understand them. So if you dig underneath, like, why do I feel what I feel? What judgments have I made to lead me to think? So do I feel like um, I'm, is my judgment that I've suffered a loss? And that I, is my judgment that this was something important to me and that I have lost it and that I am worse off now. Those are judgments. 
And if that's what I really think, then yeah, it's right. And it's, it's, it's natural that I would experience a feeling of, let's say, sadness or something. Um, uh, but I remember when I was a kid, I mean, I, your emotions sort of just come upon you. Um, and it's sort of, you know, you become overwhelmed by some kind of feeling and you don't really, you don't have, you don't know where exactly it comes. Sometimes you do, like you lost your dog or something, but you know where it comes from. But in some cases, you just, I don't know why these things come over me or why I feel the way I do. Um, and it's this kind of perspective that you can come to understand them if you can understand the judgments. And if you come to realize the judgments are mistaken, I mean, this sounds like what therapy, a lot of therapy is about. If you come to realize that judgment was mistaken, you can work to change that judgment to a better, more correct, more accurate judgment. And then indirectly, and often over time, sometimes immediately, sometimes over time, uh, to change your emotional response. And I think that really is empowering. I mean, to just take an example of like a, an immediate change. The example I always think of is somebody, um, somebody's driving really slow in front of you on the interstate, like you're going 70 or whatever, you know, and somebody's driving really slow in front of you and really slowing you down and you're trying to get to work. And your thought is, uh, well, this is just a, some a thoughtless jerk, right? You know, and that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a judgment. And you have a remotion, uh, an emotion of say irritation or something like that, vexation, that's like that word. That's, I've never used that in a sentence before. But, um, but then suppose you pass them and you give them an angry look or you know, whatever one does uh, and you realize that the person is injured in the car and your emotion will switch immediately to maybe something like concern or worry or distress or something like it's like they're hurt. You know, and so you realize that they're not just being thoughtless. Your judgment changes and your emotion changes quickly. Uh, now, when it comes to deep-seated things like issues related to self-esteem and am I any good and, you know, things that people really struggle with over time and over years, like it's not just change the judgment and then the emotion changes. It's not that quick. These things take a lot of time, but nonetheless, it gives you a way forward, uh, which I think is empowered and good. Um, and so that to the extent that people are pulling that basic principle out of stoicism, I think they're pulling something good. But there is a, a twist um to stoicism's own perspective on this and that's that the stoics the stoics viewed most of our emotions as irrational uh and to be avoided uh, so they called these emotions passions uh so these are emotions like desire and fear pleasure and distress and all the sub variants of pleasure or fear uh, but uh desire and fear pleasure and distress so these things are, uh, in general, they are uh, irrational because they, um, they, they consist in attachments to uh, what we called before as indifference. You know, so uh, a desire for a new job or a fear of losing it, um, pleasure at getting that new job, distress at failing to get the job. And you can switch in job to house, uh, girlfriend, <laughs> whatever it is. Uh, you lost your favorite cooking knife. It just doesn't really matter. But it's you have these experiences of desire, fear, pleasure, distress. Most of these are irrational because they they really constitute a a connection to things that in the end don't have a genuine. Uh, they're not genuine goods, um, and the losses of them or the failing to get them aren't genuine evils, genuine bads. Um, and 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 their their view is that. Um, those sort of emotions about desire, fear, pleasure, distress, and so on, what they do is they're, they're partly irrational because they involve a mistaken judgment that these things are good and the loss of them is a bad. 
And their view is they aren't really. Um, so in the end, they're just irrational pushes and pulls that we experience as a, uh, based on a sort of a misassessment of what's truly good uh, and truly bad, bad. And I think that, I don't agree with that. I don't think that is the, the right way to think about it, but we'll, we'll probably talk more about the issues of what, what counts as good and what counts as bad, what is a value and what's not a value uh, and so on. And I, I think just one more thing, Aaron, is we can add to, before we make this transition into maybe talking more about the passions um, or talking about the limitations of this view, but one other thing to consider is that in point in a point of favor, I would say for stoicism is that it is true that often, for example, uh, fear holds people back in ways that you know are irrational. So, for example, uh, many people have too much fear of you know taking a job they love over financial security. Um, people have fear of, um, you know, the displeasure or unpopularity um, that they might face from certain decisions or displeasure of others. Um, and people allow themselves to get angry in uh, irrational ways all the time. And, and Nancy Sherman does, you know, bring those examples to bear to bolster her arguments. And, uh, certainly looked at from that light or focusing on those kinds of examples, it's certainly true that um, realizing the emotions are cognitive can help us in noticing those situations in which our emotions are actually not, uh, not serving us and not enabling us to live rationally. But the, the, the thing, I agree with that. I think the, the thing that uh, that I take issue with in the Stoic perspective is that um, the labeling of whole categories of emotions as irrational. Um, I think, and I think Sherman would agree actually, but um, at least to some extent, that um, there is such a thing as rational anger. Uh, so, uh, so uh, you know, on page, what is this, 89, Sherman says, and this is a quote, she compares a Seneca, uh, a Stoic, to Aristotle. And she says, um, still the question remains, as this is a quote, still the question remains as to whether Seneca leaves room for anger that can be harnessed for good without either ravaging its possessor or fixing on futile fantasies of restitution uh, that downgrade a victim. Seneca casts himself in dialogue with Aristotle, whom he rightly says, quote, stands up for anger, and quote, uh, as the spur to virtue. It's, quote, removal would leave the mind unharmed, sluggish and useless for any serious endeavor. Aristotle, he says, gives it a function, summons it as though it had uses, and supplied us with enthusiasm to battle, to public action, to anything that needs doing with a certain fervor. Aristotle's real position is that we can cultivate smart anger so that it's directed at the right objects at the right time and in the right way. This is what it means to hit the mean. That's an Aristotelian expression. Um, but on Stoica's view, she writes, smart anger is illusory. There is an inevitable slippery slope. And this, this, this leads us into, no, ending quote, uh, but this leads us into what uh, the Stoic view that it, it's inherently irrational 
in part because of the way, the way it relates to attachments to things that are technically indifferent uh, and which you shouldn't have those kinds of attachments and you shouldn't be beset by these emotional responses. But the other thing is that uh, they think that anger as an irrational emotion has this sort of effect, like you're going downhill, you know, and it, you're like a snowball and it speeds up and it speeds up and it just, you can't control it until it, you burst out in some kind of uh, horrible irrational rage so that it's not exactly controllable. Um, I mean, I don't think that's right. I don't think Sherman thinks that's right either. I mean, this is one of the cautions that she has about this is that I think she does think that anger can be uh, a useful thing. I mean, to think about protests and social change and whatever, some of the kinds of things that she brings up. It's, yeah, I mean, anger should, anger is an appropriate emotion that should spur you, I think, to want something better. Um, but then you, so, but, but the worth, advice then has to be something more than just sure have uh, have emotional responses. Just make sure they're rational because it's like sure, right. Um, but then what constitutes a, a rational perspective? And then of course that needs to be fleshed out. Of course. So as part of kind of modernizing and trying to create what Sherman thinks is a healthier stoicism, I take it what she wants or what she thinks would be the, the ideal is that kind of modified form of anger. That is there, for all anger, she still thinks there are some judgments going into it, like someone deserves to be um, punished as a result. That she thinks should be re-examined. Uh, but she thinks what we can make room for on a modernized stoicism is um, perhaps the anger without the desire for retribution. Um, and also what she calls in the stoics a proto-emotion which is you, kind of the bodily response of the anger, like your pulse maybe going up and getting a little red for a moment, um, which are kind of involuntary responses, uh, Sherman argues, according to some Stoics. Um, and those kind of kind of the productive bodily responses that don't necessarily require some of the false judgments about someone deserving to be punished. Um, now, I think we think she's wrong, but I think about I mean, people sometimes deserve to be punished. Yeah, and I think just the, the issue of proto-emotions, so this is on page, uh, what is this, uh, 81, this is a quote from Seneca that she gives, um, if anyone thinks that pallor, you know, when you turn pale, usually out of fear or something, uh, if anyone thinks that pallor, falling tears, sexual excitement, or deep sighing, a sudden glint in the eyes or, or something similar are indications of an emotion, he is wrong. Uh, he fails to see that these are just bodily agitations. That's an end quote from Seneca. Um, Sherman goes on to say, they may be involuntary, but necessary for our survival. So you might, so me inserting editorially here, uh, you might think that these are kind of built into our frame, so to speak, uh, to kind of protect us in various kinds of ways. Going back to Sherman, going back to Sherman, going back to Seneca, from, this is from Seneca. Thus it is that even the bravest man often turns pale as he puts on his armor, that the knees of even the fiercest soldier tremble a little as the signal is given for battle, that a great general's heart is in his mouth before the lines have been charged against one another, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea is that these, and no, stepping out of the quote now, um, and that the idea is these are sort of proto-emotions, they're uh, bodily responses or reactions, and not emotions, technically, for the Stoics. Um, but even that doesn't, I don't think that's plausible. So 
partly because there is a judgment there being made, I think pretty clearly. What does it mean when the soldier's putting on his armor? So if I put on a blue hat, I don't know, it doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> there's no significance. Somebody, I could just find it annoying. I don't want to have a hat, but it's, it has no deeper meaning. There's no judgments associated with it, but I'm putting on an ar my, my armor. What I know is this armor is here to protect me against the spears and swords and stuff that I'm about to face and I'm about to go into battle that my life is at risk. And so it's, yeah, even if you're brave or like a, a public speaker or something, you're seasoned public speaker or you're Vladimir Horowitz, the famous you know, concert pianist. I mean, he gets nervous when he goes on stage, right? Um, it's those things are because, you know, uh, you might fail, you might get hurt, you know, there's some big issues at stake. So there are all sorts of judgments that are involved in one's response. So I don't know that, I don't know that classifying certain kinds of reactions like that as proto emotions is very helpful uh, in this regard. Um, I mean, aside well, I from things that are literally built in some fight or flight kind of Thing that you just you don't have any control over and it's not really based on any kind of any kind of judgment more or less it's just you're sort of set up to respond in a certain kind of way uh, over which you have no control but i put on my armor it's like or if i i get ready to give a talk at a big conference or something and i'm i'm uh, getting my mic you know they hook you up with a mic and stuff and they hook you up your mic start to be a little nervous you know but that's because i know i'm about to go on stage um and there are judgments and what if i don't remember what i was gonna say <laughs> or whatever so those are all judgments as well yeah go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it's part of the reason they have that view um, is that I think uh, at least the later Stoics um, that I've read on the emotions um, on this, um, there's actually a great book by Margaret uh, Graver on uh, Stoicism on the emotions, where she goes into detail in, in this on this view. And part of the reason they need to have this view, I think, is because otherwise they don't have a plausible account of what actually happens. Because when, if you live your whole life selecting uh, preferred indifference, even if intellectually you train yourself to think these make no difference to me, you're still programming physiological responses. So if you see someone die in front of you, you're not going to be able to just not physiologically react it's gonna you know seneca writes about this it's gonna happen before you can you know even think about anything so i think part of what right and i so i think they need that view to have a plausible account of what's actually going on but it of course brings up the question of what what are these preferred indifference and if they're not values why do they have this effect um yeah and let's and we'll, we'll talk about that we'll, a little later in the podcast but just since you mentioned it and i don't think i mentioned it yet um the, the notion of a preferred indifferent i made the point that uh, virtue is the only good vice is the only evil and everything else is indifferent but they divided the indifference, health, wealth, I get a job, uh, I, bought a, I bought a new book that I enjoyed, right? That sort of thing. Those are all indifference, but they divided those two into what they called preferred indifference and dispreferred indifference. In other words, there are some kinds of things that although they are technically indifferent, they, they don't affect our happiness or our moral character, we naturally do prefer them. And we do naturally prefer health, 
over sickness, uh, wealth over poverty, you know, uh, and so on. So some of these things we naturally prefer and some we naturally disprefer. Um, but what they want to say is, though, that doesn't mean they're good or bad. Um, so they're kind of walking a kind of a line there. They technically, they have a term for, they have value. You know, so there is a term that they use for this. They're trying to carve out a space because it's implausible. I think completely implausible. And I think it was completely implausible to the people of the time that the Stoics are writing that the only good is virtue and then the only bad is, is vice. Um, uh, because don't you want health, wealth, beauty, uh, physical safety, a society where your rights are protected? I mean, all of these things. I mean, how can you not say they're good? Um, it's a, well, we naturally prefer them, uh, but you know, so they, they had to make some space for that. So, uh, that's what the notion of preferred indifference is. And part of what, uh, the exercise of virtue amounts to in stoicism is, um, the, uh, the proper, vir the virtuous selection of the sort of indifference, um, or you might say the virtuous diselection of the things that you want to avoid. So it's basically conducting oneself virtuously in relation to these kinds of indifference. It's not that they're good or that they're bad. It's just that the focus is all on your virtuous conduct and in uh, our dealing with health, wealth, et cetera, poverty, sickness, our dealing with those is a way of exercising our moral character. Uh, not that you should really want those things and really want to have them in your life and think of them as real values. Um, that they don't their perspective is no, that's not the right way to look at it. Um, but that's just to add, to explain that. Um, anything, Dan, you wanna add? Uh, we should probably move on to the next topic uh, pretty soon. Um, I, I do wanna yeah, comment a yeah, bit on- Yeah, go ahead quick and then we'll sort of move on. You're right, I think- Yeah. Um, just some comments on what I think we would, other things we would take issue with in the Stoic view, including Sherman's view of the Stoics about emotions. And that is that because emotions are placed, at least the emphasis is on kind of how immediately we can control them and manage them. That is, if you even kind of question your judgments and like that, the emotions are going to change. Um, I, I think that's at least a, a wrong in its emphasis. Emotions um, are not the product immediately of conscious judgments, according to our view, but they're the product of subconscious, automatic, automatized judgments that you sometimes have to really work to change. Um, you, that, that's why people sometimes have to go to therapy to change their emotions. You know, they're, they're, they're afraid of something and they, they, I don't know, I'm afraid of spiders, let's say. And even though I know it's not a harmful spider, I can't just change my judgment about the spider and stop being afraid of spiders because I've kind of automatized beliefs about the spider that don't just go away with quick questioning. And I think what the Stoics end up having to say because of this is, well, it's only the Stoic sage, that is someone who's kind of attained this Stoic ideal, who's very rare, maybe someone like Socrates, a very rare person can attain this. And, and that's really dispiriting, I think, in the end. Um, if, if only some rare soul is you know, capable of achieving this ideal. Um, yeah, and I think and this should be an ideal. Yeah, and this is a problem that Stoics had to sort of address, and they they did it. One of the ways in which they did it is so their view was everybody is everybody is a fool and a sinner, except the sage, 
which comes across as a, he's as rare as the phoenix so like once every 500 years or something like that so it's a kind of they put an ideal out there that seems really implausible um but then and that i agree would be really dispiriting but then they introduced the notion of uh i think they called it the protrepticon it was the kind of the person who's making quote, making progress so the idea is that you're moving so everybody unless you're the sage they, they give this analogy where if you're six inches below the surface of the ocean or you're 600 fathoms you're going to drown all the same and this is the way vice is uh if you haven't reached moral perfection you're like six inches under the water even if you're, you're making a lot of progress toward it you're still vicious because you don't really know how to make the kinds of choices that the sage would make but they but but what the uh, what the later stoics do is they emphasize much more the notion of this is an ideal and we're making progress toward it so it does give you some sort of sense of, well i can get better right i can get better and better at managing my emotions um Okay, so that's a little sum of what we think is good and what we think is maybe not so good in that sort of perspective on emotions. Um, so I want to turn to an, the next point. So first was emotions, but second is um, has to do with thinking about stoicism as a philosophy for dealing with adversity. And much of the book's guidance uh, presents stoicism as a set of techniques and perspectives for dealing with adversity, in effect, coping with negatives. Uh, pain, suffering, loss, annoyance, anxiety, stress, PTSD. I mean, she writes a lot about the military because she's been working in uh, as a philosophy professor in military institutions for some time, uh, places like West Point, things like that. Um, but a lot of it's about dealing with negatives. Uh, and so, first of all, what are that she thinks valuable in that regard, um, even if it needs some adjustments? So, what are some, what are some of these stoic adversity managing techniques? Uh, that Sherman is highlighting. We want to say something about that before kind of evaluating. Yeah, so one of these techniques um, Sherman calls pre-rehearsal of bad outcomes. That is, you anticipate bad things that might happen and kind of rehearse what you're going to say to yourself if that happens. Um, and, and so this is, for example, Sherman quotes Epictetus uh, saying, now, if you are fond of a jug, say, I am fond of a jug. Then if it's broken, you will not be troubled. We're just saying, oh, well, it's just a jug. It's not like something I, you know, it's not something love that I love. It's not part of my you know, virtue. It's just a jug. Um, now, but then you had, you know, say the same thing about like a husband or a wife. You know, if my wife, what is it like to say when my wife dies? Well, it's just a woman. You know, it's not, you know. So you kind of rehearse yourself in advance kind of the facts you're going to say about this thing and the perspective you're going to take to, Sherman used the word desensitize yourself so that you kind of, it doesn't sting as much when the loss might eventually occur. Um, Sherman notes, and I think this is my experience too, that when she explained this initially to her students, her students are shocked, like what, what kind of inhuman perspective is this on values that you're going to desensitize yourself to them and not really care if your husband or wife dies, or even if you lose, you know, most of us would think, yeah, it's okay to get upset if your phone breaks or something. But uh, the goal here is to kind of pre-rehearse these things so that you desensitize yourself to the eventual loss. Um, Sherman tries to make this a bit more, I guess, human, she would say, um, and, and get around this reaction from her students. Um, what she says, she gives her own personal example of how she thinks about this. She says, 
Uh, let's try to fill this advice out, she says. We give ourselves advance warning. I say to my husband, as I recently did, I really adore this Richard Batterham large fluted celadon crock. I'm going to be really upset if either one of us breaks it. What's unsaid, but, but both of us are now queued up to think is let's be careful. And that might lead us to a conversation half tacit, half spoken about whether it's the end of the world of the breaks. It's meant to be used, they say to each other. Storing the bread in, in it is now the perfect use for it. We'll be really careful. Why have it if we don't use it? If it breaks, it breaks. That's, that's kind of what you think should be going on in your mind to desensitize yourself to the loss, try to make it sound a bit more attractive. Um, because that is kind of a common sense way, I think, to think about this. Although uh, it's probably not exactly what Epictetus has in mind, but maybe what some Stoics could have in mind. Uh, Aaron, Tristan, you want to jump in? Yeah, uh, Aaron, you're muted. Sorry, they're doing some workout back. I'm trying to minimize the sound. Um, yeah, I mean, so you mentioned it. I don't think this is exactly what Epictetus has in mind. Uh, I don't think it is exactly what Epictetus has in mind, nor I think does she agree with <laughs> the perspective Epictetus has. I mean, his his view. I mean, uh, I mean, his view is that you, they should do that. You should do this the same thing with your child. Uh, is that you know uh, every night when you go tuck your kid to bed, uh, you know you give him a kiss, and you know when you do so, I mean, just tell yourself uh, this child is going to die, you know, and don't let your um, uh, elation or your joy or your enjoyment of your, you know, contemplation of your kid and, and so on, like get away with you. Uh, because remember, don't get too attached. Uh, remember that they're mortal and you have to constantly keep that, you have to constantly have to keep tempering or staving off a kind of um, attachment, uh, even if it's your child. And he says, in context of the child, it's like a cup that got broken. A, a cup broke. And then you won't be harmed, he says. Well, <laughs> that's pretty stark. Uh, but it's not crazy once you think that he has a real worldview. And his worldview is everything that happens. And this is this kind of perspective doesn't exactly come out in the book. It might be mentioned at some point, but it's not really focused on. He has this view that everything that happens is fated to happen that everything happens as a result of divine providence. Everything that happens is for the best. Uh, this is part of the Stoic worldview. Um, and it's part of what it looks like to have a worldview and to have an integrated perspective on this is the nature of the world. You know, it's, it's uh, infused with a divine reason. This is God and who makes everything as it is and as the cause of the universe unfolding in all the various kinds of ways it does. Uh, and providentially for the sake of man uh, and for the sake of all rational beings. So everything that happens is the, for the best. And that would include your child dying, you not getting the job, dropping your iPhone in the toilet, <laughs> whatever it is, it's just sort of, and so one has to adopt an attitude of accommodation to fate and not to get ruffled by it because it's the good that's coming to you. And that the only thing you really can manage and control sort of on your own is your own um, like response to them, your own internal judgment or reaction or estimate in effect of, your place in the world and whether you really suffered a loss or not, whether you whether this is really is good. So it's just a focus on inner moral character 
um, via your judgment. Uh, that's the only thing you can really control. Everything else happens as God wants it to happen in effect. Uh, so it's, if God wants, I mean, you get this, you know, God's taking her back, right? She's on loan. You, you've heard this just even in, I think, Christianity. Um, but this is the Stoic perspective. It's certainly Epictetus, and I think she thinks that's too extreme. Um, yeah, Tristan, you and I, and Dan, we were talking about this a bit earlier, is her treatment of Epictetus. Um, I think it would have been more objective, I think, on her part. Uh, well, that's how I read it. I think it's more, it would be more objective to simply say, I think Epictetus's views are too extreme. They're too, they're too much. I don't agree with them. Uh, I think it's not healthy. I think it's not true. Uh, but I think part of what she does is she distances herself a bit from Epictetus by saying, well, he's a hyperbolizer. You know, he exaggerates. He presents, he uses shock and awe techniques, she says, uh, to kind of wake, jolt students awake to his perspective and so on. That may be true that he does that. Um, and yet I think it is his perspective. Like, this is how you should treat the loss of a child. Uh, and that's a stark perspective that many of us wouldn't want to adopt or think it's healthy to adopt. And I don't think she thinks it's healthy to adopt, but it just, it's one thing to cushion the blow, you know, to, you know, but it's, it, yeah. But it's another thing to say, um, to adopt that kind of attitude. Cause I think really what, if you really did have that attitude, it's, you don't actually care about the things. My car got wrecked, yeah, there'd be some metal. It's one thing to tell yourself that, like you're trying to get yourself into a mindset where you're not overwhelmed by, oh my God, I lost my car. It's the end of the world. And yeah, but that's, this is a bit of a false alternative. It's not, you're totally overwhelmed because you think it's the absolute end of the world because you lost your phone versus piece of metal. <laughs> because then that's a total detachment from it. And I think she's trying to walk some kind of middle line, I think, between these. Uh, but you have to take the stoic view seriously though. That, and I think Epic is too that's not the right way to think about it. Um, but one of the things that, that really jumped out uh, at me, like reading the whole book, was that, and I think it's worth asking, why is adversity management the central focus of a philosophy? Uh, why is loss, suffering, anxiety, pain so central? Um, so Sherman mentions that she's, she's writing the book in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. There are protests in America following the death of George Floyd. There's a general atmosphere of political ugliness. Things are messy and it looks like a time where people you know, would want some kind of relief from some of this. And I think that, that might explain part uh, of the appeal of stoicism and its techniques. But I think there's something deeper philosophically going on. And so while reading the book, I couldn't help recalling uh, this passage. There's a passage from Atlas Shrugged um, uh, in which one of the heroes who regularly risks his life uh, in the service of his cause uh, explains to one of the other characters why he and his wife um, are nonetheless at peace with his choice, despite all the risk. Um, so if we can get that quote up on screen. Um, the quote is this. We do not hold the quote. We do not hold the belief that this earth is a realm of misery where man is doomed to destruction. We do not think that tragedy is our natural state or natural fate, sorry. And we do not live in chronic dread of disaster. We do not expect disaster until we have specific reason to expect it. And when we encounter it, we are free to fight it. 
It is not happiness, but suffering that we consider unnatural. It is not success, but calamity that we regard as the abnormal exception in human life. And that's from Atlas Shrugged. And I think this, now I'm not saying that Stoicism thinks, oh, everything's all about calamity, but there is this heavy focus on suffering, suffering management, negative management and stuff. And I think this really brings out one of the key uh, differences, uh, at least in the perspective of objectivism vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the difference between objectivism and Stoicism, uh, or at least the kind of Stoicism Sherman projects. Um, Sherman's Stoicism is primarily about preparing yourself for loss, frustration, keeping an emotional distance from the kind of outcomes that you desire so you're not too badly hurt. You know, there's this preparation that, you know, you rem remind yourself you might not get it, remind yourself uh, that it might not work out. Um, um, and, and there's a lot of recognizing of our collective vulnerability, uh, the need to band together in communities of support. All of this just kind of exudes this feeling toward life uh, and the human condition that is the opposite of objectivism. And it's, it's the feeling that life is a place of fragility and suffering. Um, now, one might hold that view and one might have reasons for holding that view. So that's not a refutation of it. It's just an acknowledgement that there, this, it's infused with this sort of perspective. Um, whereas objectivism is not a philosophy for managing pain. It's not a philosophy for preparing for loss. It's about the ambitious pursuit of values. It's about looking out at the world, envisioning what you want, and then ambitiously pursuing and enjoying these values. Um, it's about actively crafting a life that you're passionate about. It's outward looking in that way. And the way stoicism is, I think, way too much inwardly focused. Focusing only on what you can control, only on your moral character and your judgments that, you know, sort of, which build a moral character. Um, events outside us don't become too attached to them. You can't really fully control them. You're just setting yourself for, up for hurt and loss. Um, now, this is the now one thing that advocates of stoicism will often say uh, when if if they hear something like that is, well, that's not fair because the Stoics didn't just sit around uh, on their hands, lay on the couch, and wait for you know reality to sort of unfold. And that's true. Um, but I think part of that uh, comes from their view that they have, um, that one has a duty because one is a rational being, uh, one has a connection uh, to the whole universe, to the cosmos as a whole, um, by virtue of your connection to God and his relation to the universe, is that you have a duty and obligation to fulfill whatever role that sort of has come to you in, in the world. If you're, if you're a cripple, Epictetus says, play that role well. If you're a slave, play that role well, and don't complain. If you are born into a wealthy, politically connected family, play the role of a political, uh, somebody active in the polis, in, in the city, play that role well. I mean, this is the role that sort of reality has given you. But so it's, in that respect, it's very much a duty orientation uh, to values, not like, what do you want out of life? Like, you personally select, these are the things that are important to me, these are what I love, and then go after them. And that's much more objectivism's perspective. Um, so, of course, uh, a philosophy should have something to say about, well, what happens when you suffer tragedy? What happens when you fail to get values and so on? But in objectivism, that has nowhere near the centrality, nowhere near, that's even putting it too lightly. Ayn Rand never takes suffering, loss, pain as metaphysically significant, like as something really worth focusing on, like paying attention to, attending to, uh, worrying over, like that such is life. 
would never be Ayn Rand's perspective from the, from the perspective of looking at suffering. It's like, this is man's lot. Uh, that's the opposite of her view. I mean, her view uh, is that the universe is auspicious to value achievement. Uh, it's a place where you can find happiness, you can find values, you can go after it and get it and live it and love it. Um, that's what's normal uh, and the, to be expected in life. Um, sorry for one long for that. Just that really jumps out at me in the book, and it's it's such a contrast. Yeah, and just to add to that, Aaron, because I think if we're bringing up the examples of her novels, um, I think they actually have great examples of resilience. So, um, you know, not to spoil. I, I really hate spoiling the novels. So I don't want to uh, say anything that would spoil them. But you know, for people who have read them, if you think about what Rourke goes through um, in in the course of his career, um, or you know what Dagny faces in the course of Atlas Shrugged, there's an enormous amount of resilience. But um, objectivism's perspective is not oh now you have to focus on how to avoid that loss or how to avoid the pain that's involved with adversity um, or involved with challenges it's rather it's actually the opposite it's actually those are the opportunities when you need to focus on your values and the things that matter to you the most because that's what enables you to keep living and and that's something that i think is interesting um, about stoicism that's not often questioned which is yeah and I think, um, that it's assumed or i'll just say one more thing it's just it's assumed that the solution to uh dealing with loss and adversity is to distance yourself from it um and to uh have it not affect you but what's not often brought up is that um you know, in actual experience, it's very often the opposite that happens in cases of adversity. So, for example, uh, one of my favorite books, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, Viktor Frankl talks about how um, the uh, a lot of the people that he knew that survived the concentration camps were people who held a, a deep belief in the value of humanity. They believed in each other. They trusted each other. Um, and they weren't sort of just training themselves to distance themselves from what they were experiencing or dissociating themselves from it. Um, so obviously I'm not a psychologist and, you know, there may be cases in which something is so traumatic that that kind of dissociation is appropriate. Obviously it worked for, um, I forgot his name, but the guy that was a prisoner of war that, uh, used Epictetus. Oh, James Gottfield. Uh, James, yeah. That's a hell yeah, of so a story, by the way. If you ever, yeah, you should look. People should look that up. That's interesting. He was he was a in a POW camp in in Vietnam for like what eight years, tortured and stuff. And he, his his view was that his reading of Epictetus that it really helped him cope. But it also brings out the idea like we don't live in a prison camp, like right, like metaphysically it, it, and right. It, and I guess it's it's just just to say one more thing on that um, just to wrap that point up, it's just for each of those examples, I think you can find a multitude of examples of where people handled loss or handled uh, terrible suffering or adversity precisely by holding on to values, precisely by focusing on the things they still had um, or the things they still believed in. And yeah. when we look at people in life who um, 
achieve great things, who like achieve a really high potential of, uh, you know, what they're able to do, whether it's in athletics or in science um, or, or indeed in philosophy, um, those people face great adversity and a lot of um, difficulty, but what enables them to succeed is normally a belief in the value and the of what they're doing. Um, yeah. And I think that, see, and that, that's, that's the major, sorry, I mean, that's the major difference uh, between, uh, that's a major difference between objectivism and stoicism on this view. And can we get the, the quotes from, uh, uh, from Atlas Shrugged about values and virtues up? Because like I said, the stoic view is that the, the central thing for you to focus on is virtue, your moral character. Um, whereas objectivism's view is, um, this is putting it a little too strongly, um, but virtue is a means to an end. Um, so here's a couple of quotes from Atlas Shrugged. Value is that which one acts to gain or, or, and or keep. Virtue is the action by which one gains and or keeps it. So virtue uh, is valuable because it's your means to values. Values are the focus. It's like you think about you want a house, you want a career, you want love, you want, you know, you just look out in the world, there's all of these things to have. I mean, ultimately the value is life. So it's uh, your ultimate value is life and everything has meaning and, and value in relation to um, your own life. It either sustains it, enhances it, advances it, enriches it. But these are, these are largely the things that the Stoics think of as indifference. Um, when you think of all the things that make your life meaningful, worthwhile, worth having, worth hanging on to, I mean, those are the things uh, that the Stoics think of as indifferent, as neither good nor bad, as not genuine goods and values. And objectivism has a very different view. Virtue is, and here's the other quote, virtue is not an end in itself. Uh, the Stoics think it is, by the way. Virtue is not an end in itself. Virtue is not its own reward. Life is the reward of virtue. And happiness is the goal and reward of life. Um, and so really objectivism's view is much more outward focused. It's much more focused on the actual values that you can achieve in the world that enhance and enrich and advance your life. It's not all about make sure your inner moral character is good and then you're all good to go. You've got everything that you could uh, need in life. You could have everything for happiness. And I, I just don't think that's true. Um, I think happiness requires externals. I mean, Aristotle, I think is right about that. Not about every aspect of Aristotle's view, but Externals is puts too much distance. Uh, as a, they're just external to happiness. No, they're the values that sustain and enrich your life. I mean, if you ask the Stoics, why be virtuous? And, or, or why is virtue the only good? And their answer is, well, virtue is the only thing that unconditionally benefits. So if you have wealth, maybe you'd use it for bad ends. Or if you're healthy, maybe you can beat up somebody more effectively, right? So any kind of value that you could choose uh, could be used badly. Um, and that's true in some sense, but it's just that, but why be virtuous? If it's not to attain values, it's well, to be happy, but so how does virtue, virtuous, virtuousness make you happy if it's not connected to the achievement of values? So they, they, this is, we were talking about this earlier, there's this sort of un, we'll have to sort of end that part of the discussion here, but there is a sort of um, unstable, is unstable, is that the word? kind of an unresolved tension, I think, in the way they think about preferred indifference. It's like, well, they're technically indifferent, but, you know, we prefer them and we kind of want them in our lives. And so there's a sense in which they're values and not values. There was a kind of a renegade Stoic, uh, Aristo, Aristo of Chios, and he rejected that. He thought, you're just, you guys are just waffling. Uh, like, it's either good or, it's either a good or it's not. 
if you call it a preferred indifferent, you're saying it's a good in the end. Uh, and so why don't you just get rid of all the preferred indifference and just preferred indifference and scrap all that and just say there and just bite the bullet and say there's only good and there's evil. That's it. And have and and be literally indifferent to all the other things. Um, but anyway, so that, that that's that's some perspective on that. Um, do we let's let you want to take a look at some questions? I think we've got a couple of questions in the queue here. Um, one we just got a, a YouTube super chat from uh, Bradley, so thank you, uh, Bradley. Comments. He says, uh, let's see if I can find this. He says, uh, Stoicism was developed pre-individual rights when you did actually have the free will of a quote, dog chained to a cart. Uh, context is everything. Um, I think the point Bradley is making is that, you know, uh, life is much more precarious and much more out of your control then uh, than it is possible now, than it is now. Uh, and so it's more plausible for someone to have a perspective that, uh, so the dog chained to a cart is just a, it's a, it's a something that Chrysippus was one of the great Stoics, um, one of the major Stoics uh, was said to have said <laughs> uh, that you're like a dog chained to a cart. You can either walk willingly with the cart because you're, you're chained to the cart, right? Um, and you're, the flow of your life will be smooth. Or you can fight against the pull of the cart and kick against the chain and, and stuff, but you're going to get pulled along one way or the other because you're tied to the cart. The cart's bigger than you are, so in effect, you can you can accept your fate willingly and walk along calmly with it, or you can kick against fate um, futilely and suffer. But you're going to go either way. So the, the the events will unfold as they do, and I think there's more of a sense that one was out of control or had less control over one's life uh, then, and that's probably true. Um, we got another super chat from Fuja, so thank you, Fuja. Um, and she says, uh, is, the, is the modern fascination with Stoicism an opposite reaction to or riding on the popularity of altruism? Um, in the sense, okay, so let me just interpret this. Uh, so is it a response, is the popularity of altruism, uh, sorry, of Stoicism a response to the popularity of altruism, like against it? Um, it's a mixture. Uh, I think one of the reasons for stoicism is becoming popular today is people are more and more, I think, uh, I mean, I don't have numbers on this, but I get the sense that people are more dissatisfied with traditional religion, but they're still looking for some kind of a framework, some kind of a perspective on their, their place in the world and some kind of guidance in life and stuff. And I think that's one of the reasons they're looking to philosophies uh, for this. But stoicism, I don't, I don't think it's, it's really they're attracted to stoicism in reaction to altruism in the sense that they don't like altruism, so they go to stoicism. I think what stoicism allows people to keep their altruism. And I think it's one of the appeals of stoicism. So altruism, uh, you know, the, the idea that you should place others above self and so on, you have duties to others and so on, that that has just infused the whole moral philosophy of the, of the West for a couple thousand years. Um, and so often people equate morality with altruism. So that whole perspective is hard to shake. Um, I mean, I think that perspective is wrong, the wrong way to look at uh, morality, but it's widespread. And when people adopt stoicism, they realize, well, I don't have to give up that perspective and really adopt something radical because as Sherman stresses in the book, 
stoicism is not all about you. It's not all about inner resilience, you know, get hard, you know, uh, harden yourself to adversity, uh, isolate yourself in an inner citadel of the mind and be invulnerable. It's not, that's not the full stoic message. It's part of it. But as she says in the book, the, the full message is that you are also a fragment, that you are a fragment of a wider, larger whole to which you have some sort of moral obligation. So you're like a part, like a hand of a body you know, and you're meant to fit in with other rational beings, with other soci uh, people in society, and you have a moral obligation. And she brings this kind of famous um, uh, kind of, I don't know, image that uh, Hierocles, uh, uh, ancient Stoic brought up. He says, you know, you start with this sort of inner circle of concern for yourself, right? Because you're, you're naturally oriented toward your own self and your preservation. And then the little wider concentric circle is you're concerned with your, oh, my hands are in the camera, uh, with your family or your kin or your loved one's close relations. And then you have a wider circle of concern where the, sort of the attachment becomes less and less as you go out. Let's say the people in your city and then the people in your nation and then wider and wider mankind in general. And the, 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 the attachment and level of concern diminishes as you go sort of further out to strangers and somewhere distant to your family and loved ones. But what his view was, we're all kin, in effect, by all being rational beings, by all having a connection to God's divine reason. We should see ourselves as members of, a, of in effect, a global community, if you want to put it in modern language, um, and that we should try to bring the people from the outermost circle closer and closer and closer toward the inner circle of concern. So we should have this sort of concern for all mankind in a similar way we would do with our loved ones. And so there is this sort of, I don't know, you call it cosmic altruism, whatever you want to, however you want to think about that, but it's um, by being this, in effect, having a kinship relationship with all human beings, you also have to have uh, benevolence and generosity and concern for, for everyone. Uh, and I think that taps into the sort of altruist moral perspective that most people accept. And I find that they, I think they find that plausible. I think one of the things they don't like about certain approaches to stoicism. It's, it's too individualistic. It's too self-focused. It's too much on myself, my development, my tranquility, my peace of mind, and let the world go as it may. Um, and I think that's something Sherman finds frustrating and she thinks is the wrong attitude because there's, there's a lot in the world that needs to change and it's not all about you. And you know, so she has a perspective on that. Um, which I think is one of the problems with stoicism, <laughs> but it's also kind of a, it's also a bit of a, um, it's not that someone really deeply concerned about their own life and prioritizing their own life and thinking that their own life is their ultimate value. It's not that you wouldn't be concerned about the world around you. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why somebody deeply focused in self-interest um, would have a concern for what his society is like, what, what kind of a place he's living in. And so, so it's not just that you choose self versus others or something else too. Uh, simplistic perspective. I think we're, are, we're out of time, right? Okay, so Dan, yeah. you want to so, um, We're out of time for the podcast, but we do have more time to take your questions right after the show in Clubhouse. Uh, so be sure to download the Clubhouse app for your smartphone and join us all there right after the show. We do want to recommend some resources related to today's podcast uh, where you can learn more about what we've been discussing today. Uh, first is an article uh, by Aaron, uh, The False Promise of Stoicism, uh, where you can read more about some 
criticisms of, of stoicism from the objectivist perspective that is at bit.ly slash false promise stoicism. Uh, then there are two articles we'd recommend by Ayn Rand related to the topics discussed today. The first is titled Causality versus Duty, which you can find online at bit.ly slash causality vs duty. And the second, uh, which uh, deals really nicely with the question of what is in our control versus what is not in our control and the consequences of that, which is kind of where stoicism all builds from. Uh, this is a, a wonderful article called The Metaphysical versus the Man-Made. And that one you can find at bit.ly slash mv hyphen mm, if I'm reading that correctly. Yeah, metaphysical versus man-made, mv hyphen mm. And third, uh, you can also take a look uh, just in relation to our discussion of stoicism on the emotions. Uh, you can find some selections in the Ayn Rand lexicon on emotions for the objective suit on emotions. That is bit.ly slash ar hyphen emotions. Uh, join us back here next week, same time, Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern for the next New Idea Live. Uh, with the anniversary of 9-11 coming up, Ilan Giorno and Ankar Gatte will be talking about how 9-11 impacted confidence in political institutions. Please send us your questions for future Q&A episodes. We have these once every month or two, uh, and it's good to have, uh, to have you send your questions related to objectivism in advance uh, as we plan future Q&A episodes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to our channel on YouTube, hit that bell uh, to get notifications for when we go live or when our new recordings are posted. If you're watching the recording, please like the show, comment on it, share the episode. Uh, it really helps us attract new viewers. And if you're watching on Facebook, please consider doing the equivalence there. Uh, if you have questions or comments about today's episode um, and you missed the clubhouse, or if you have suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email. Uh, the email address is newideal at irand.org. We read all of your emails and we reply to many of them. Uh, so thanks, uh, Aaron. Thanks, Tristan. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for joining. I uh, hope to see you, everyone in clubhouse in a moment. See you there. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.